All right, this morning we continue in the book of Hebrews, now getting into chapter 8, where we're going to begin learning about um, the new covenant in Christ our Savior and all that that means moving forward. We're going to look this morning at verses 1 through 6 of chapter 8, and then probably next week, verses 6 through 13 to the end of the chapter. But for now, verses 1 through 8 of or 1 through 6 of chapter 8. Let me read that for us. As always, this is the very word of the living God. Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. So in the reading of God's holy, infallible, inerrant word, as we come before it, let me pray quickly for us. Our God and Father, we ask your blessing now as we come before your word, pour out your spirit to enlighten us and equip us to understand it and apply it in our lives. Fulfill your own promise that when it goes out, it does not return to you void. Instead, we ask and pray that it would accomplish everything that you have purposed for it and that it would be successful in everything for which you have sent it this morning. Open our ears and open our eyes to hear and see the things you would have us learn And in learning those things, may your word become a lamp to our feet and a light to our path so that we can walk the way that you would have us walk as your people. Father, as always, we ask this in Christ's holy and wonderful name. Amen. One of my old high school friends named Dan, after graduating from college and getting married sometime around 1986 or 87, moved to Washington, D.C., and Dan is an interesting guy. I don't know that he's ever held a real job. <laughs> um, but he's kind of a, a, a do-it-all, a, a jack-of-all-trades in some ways, and very interested in history and very interested in uh, American history and politics in particular. He moved to D.C., bought an old house, began to remodel it, and discovered they still had the tubes, the, the, the pipes in the house for gas lighting. In the 19th century, they replaced candles with gas. You'd go around and turn on the gas and light your lights, not unlike the the light bulbs that we screw into the ceiling today, uh, except there'd be a gas fixture hanging down and a wonderful advancement in technology. So he went about and remodeled his whole house, set up the gas lighting, and became kind of an expert, if not the expert in the whole U.S. on gas lighting. And he's remodeled Congress, and he's remodeled different buildings, and now there's gas lighting in various parts of Washington, D.C. It's kind of cool. He actually even helped with the gas lights on Main Street here in Disneyland, of all places. Um, 
But a few years ago, I was out to visit back there, and he had a new project. Um, patent models. Have you ever heard of patent models? Something that was a practice in the United States from 1790 to 1880. Every patent application that was submitted to the U.S. Patent Office had to come with a model. No bigger than 12 by 12 by 12. Had to fit into a foot-sized cube. And it had to be a working model. So if you've got a proposal for a new pump, a new engine, a new whatever, you have to make a working model and submit it with your application. And so over the decades, almost 100 years, the U.S. Patent Office collected thousands and thousands and thousands of these patent models. Um, and they started taking up a lot of room. <laughs> and so a couple of decades or so ago, they started giving them or selling them to museums and collectors, and, and uh, these patent models got dispersed around uh, different parts of the U.S. Well, they realized a few years later they're falling into disrepair. If it's in a private collection, when the collector dies, what happens to these things? And so my friend Dan got involved by trying to track these down and, and bring them back and re, kind of reestablish this collection of, of these models of, of different machines and whatnot. And so what I was <laughs> treated to when I went to visit is this big table in his dining room and another table in the kitchen um, just littered with patent models and parts and doing repairs and things. And it's, it's incredibly fascinating because you see these really delicate, intricate, um, quite beautiful, quite artistic working models of real machines, real things that really work um, and they're, they're, they're quite amazing and I can see why they'd want to collect these and uh, preserve this part of our history as, as a nation, as a country. Well, I thought of this because we've been talking so much in Hebrews about patterns and types, about shadows of reality and patent models have that kind of similar idea. It's a pattern that shows the reality. Think about this, maybe someone designs a better train engine and they build a little 12 by 12 by 12 model of a train engine. You can't ride a train pulled by that tiny little engine from Boston to Philadelphia. It's too small, it's not powerful enough. You can't ship your family and your goods and whatever else you might want to ship from one city to another. It's not powerful enough to carry you from one place to another. It also reminds me of a, a scene from uh, one of the Monty Python movies. Um, the knights, the medieval knights, are gathered around with you know, King Arthur, and they look up on a hill, and there is a castle, Camelot. And they all say, Camelot, Camelot, Camelot. And one of the little lackeys turns to the camera and says, it's only a model. That's how we should think, I believe, of these patterns and types in Scripture. It might be an exquisite, beautiful, 12 by 12 by 12 scale model of a train, but it cannot get you where you need to go. It might be a wonderful model of the perfect, safe boiler to heat your house, 
but it can't heat your house. It's just a model. It's just a model. That's all it is. I like to suggest that that's how we should think of Old Testament types and shadows. It's just a model. It's just a model. Exquisite, beautiful, useful for certain things, but all it can do is point us to a greater reality. And that's what the author of Hebrews has been teaching to us and does so again in these first six verses of Hebrews chapter 8. He points us again to a shadow of a greater reality so that we can better understand how Jesus, the reality, is a better minister with a better ministry because he serves his ministry in a better sanctuary. Real simple this morning. I just want to walk through the passage, look at what it says, and then finish by talking about some hopefully practical lessons we can take from these verses. So just a couple steps. Look at the passage. Look at what it teaches us. So here we are in chapter 8. The author has been telling us now for quite some time in this letter how Jesus is a high priest for us, fitting for us. And we talked about how he's fitting for us last week. He's a high priest after the order of Melchizedek, which means he's superior to and replaces the Old Testament priests. This is the kind of high priest, says the author, that we need. And so he continues in chapter 8. The point in what we are saying is this. And when he says the point, he means, this is a word that has tremendous connotation. It's not just the point. It's the main point. Think of it as the heart of the matter. In one sense, Hebrews is building up to chapter 8, verse 1, and now we summarize what's come before and after is commentary on what's being said. The main point, the heart of the matter is this. We have the high priest that we need. And that high priest is Jesus. Consider this Jesus, is what the author has been calling us to do since the beginning of this letter. We have a high priest who's better than the Old Testament priests because he's eternal, because his once-for-all sacrifice of himself takes care of our sin once for all. We have a high priest who always lives to always make intercession for us before the Father. We have a high priest who's gone into the holy place behind the curtain as a forerunner, to go ahead of us into those heavenly places, to lead us into God's presence, but also to announce to the Father, they're coming. They're coming behind me. We need such a high priest, is what the author's been saying, and now he says we have such a high priest. And he tells us something about that high priest in verse 1. He sits at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. In other words, he's at God's right hand, the position of power, to rule, to reign, so that like Melchizedek, he's not just a priest, but he's also a king. He's sovereign, he's powerful. But also, he doesn't stand at the right hand of the Father. He sits. He sits because his work is done. It's completed. 
It's accomplished. He sits because that's authority. That's power. That's completion. Nowhere in the Old Testament practice could the priests serving in the temple ever sit. You can read all the details about all the construction of the tabernacle and all the instruments. There's no chair. <laughs> There's no bench. They don't get to sit down. Their work, that's, that's an image we should have that tells us their work is never done. It's never accomplished. Also, it would be dis- disrespectful to God to sit in his presence. Only one can do that. Only one can sit. One whose work is done and one who is God himself. Jesus is such a high priest, seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. His work is done. He's God. He reigns and rules from heaven. Verses 2 through 4 go on to tell us that Jesus ministers at God, God's right hand, in that true holy place, offering the true gift to God that needs to be offered, namely himself. There's a comparison in these three verses between the tabernacle built by Moses and the reality that it represented or pointed to in heaven. So when we think about the tabernacle and all of those detailed instructions that we read from Exodus 24, when we think about the holiness of it, the beauty of it, the splendor of it, it's just a model. It's just a model. Just a copy. The true tent, the true tabernacle, the true holy place is where God is. And that's in heaven. Every priest, we're told, offers gifts and sacrifices, and so does Jesus. And what he has to offer is himself and his work. In his work, he obeyed God's law perfectly and did not earn the penalty of death. Instead, he earned, he merited the reward of life. Remember, the Old Testament law says, do this and live. Deuteronomy 4.1. But the lesson taught by the law over and over and over again in these repeated sacrifices and priests whose work is never done, who can never sit down, who are never finished with their work ever, is that no one could fulfill that requirement, do this and live through mere obedience to the law. But Jesus did. And then he willingly offered himself a spotless lamb, a perfect sacrifice to pay for the sins of his people, for all who repent and believe in him. Their sins are placed on him, and he died to pay for those sins and took God's wrath and punishment in their place. And now by faith, faith in what he has done for us, his obedience is credited to our account. God's people have always known this. It goes back to Abraham. Abraham believed and it was counted to him. It was credited to him as righteousness. It had to be that way since no one could meet the conditions of the law. Do this and live. So it has to come by faith. The just, says Habakkuk, the just shall live by faith. And now with his work 
and his sacrifice accepted by the Father, Jesus rose from death to life and has ascended to the Father, where he is now really, truly seated at the right hand of the throne of majesty. And so there in God's presence, he continually offers himself to God for all of his people. The author says in verse 4, if he was on earth, this wouldn't be true. He can't offer himself from earth. He needs to offer himself in the true tabernacle where God is. But also, if he were on earth, there's already priests offering sacrifice. This is one of the reasons we think Hebrews is written before A.D. 70. The author makes reference to the sacrifices that are still going on by the priests that live. There's still priests doing that in in Jerusalem at the temple. And Jesus, as the author has told us, is not a Levite, but rather from the tribe of Judah. He can't serve in the earthly temple. And there's plenty of priests, nevertheless, to do that anyway. But again, the temple... And by all accounts, Herod's temple was exquisite. It was painted such a pure white, that, and it's on the hill, that people would say, they would recount, that as you approached Jerusalem, you could see the temple shining brightly from the reflection of the sun, bright enough to blind you, practically. The courts, the pillars, the gold, the, the wealth, the ornamentation... A gorgeous edifice. Sacrifices happening day after day after day. On the Day of Atonement, the streets of Jerusalem running with blood from the lambs that were sacrificed. But the temple in Jerusalem? It's just a model. It's just a model. It's just a model. We need Jesus to minister on our behalf in the real holy place where God is in heaven. So verse 5 goes on to tell us very explicitly these things, the, the tabernacle, the temple, they serve as a copy and a shadow of heavenly things. Moses was given detailed instruction on how to build the tabernacle. We read about that in Exodus 26. There's evidence in chapter 26 as well as earlier in chapter 25 and later in chapter 27 that on the mountain when Moses was in the presence of God, he was given something to look at so that he could have a model, a visual image from which to add to the verbal instruction that he was given, a pattern that he was given. If you go back to 20. Uh, Chapter 26, verse 30, it says, Erect the tabernacle according to the plan for it that you were shown on the mountain. That language is repeated in those chapters. It's just a pattern. It's just a model. And then verse 6 goes on. Christ is a better priest, better sacrifice, better minister. And therefore he has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent as the, than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better. His ministry is as great or greater than the old ministry as the new covenant is greater than the old covenant. Why? Because it's enacted on better promises. Jesus has a better ministry because of who he is, what he offers, and what he does. 
as, as more excellent, if we can put it that way. We don't talk this way in English often. As much more excellent. It's as greater than the old as the covenant is greater than the old. Better promises are the difference. And we receive these promises, we experience the promises not by work, not by law-keeping, not by ritual, not by sacrifice, not by buying them. You can't purchase them. Not by anything that we do. But going all the way back to chapter 6, verse 12, but through faith and patience we inherit the promises of salvation. All the promises of salvation. Our sins paid for, righteousness given to us, eternal life, peace with God, peace with one another, joy, hope, love, and on and on and on. All these promises are ours one way, through faith and through patience. And we know faith itself is not a work either, but a gift from God, from Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. We do nothing but receive that work and rests upon it. How much better is the New Testament promise, receive and rest what I, upon what I give you, than the Old Testament promise, do this and live. <laughs> the one can't be done. The other, we do nothing. We just accept it. How much better is the one than the other? So how much better is Jesus' ministry than the ministry of the priests? How much better is the covenant that he brings than the old covenant? Too much work, too much cost, too much effort. Way too much failure over and over and over again because too much sin. Our better minister with a better ministry, Jesus, is actually able to do for us what we need what we cannot do for ourselves. So the call of the, of the author here is just to, to receive it and to rest upon it. Look to the promises of God. Receive them with faith and with patience. Well, some additional thoughts on what we can take from these verses this morning. First is just that, to reiterate that main theme, stop our own efforts to be good before God, to be right with God, to make peace with God, to buy his favor, and just rest. Receive the work that Jesus has done and rest on it. We're not very good at resting. (laughs) We're just not. We like to go, 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 go. We're always doing something. Rest. That's why we don't want to get legalistic about it, but that's why the Sabbath is such a valuable day for us. A physical, personal, real-life expression of our faith as we rest in the work that Jesus has done for us. Second lesson, don't be enamored with shadows and copies. I was fascinated by these models on my friend's table in his house. Absolutely fascinated. Probably because I'm a geeky engineer type person. But they're really interesting. They work. They do things. And they're tiny. It's neat. (laughs) It's like building with really cool Legos. But we get enamored, like I got enamored with those patent models, we get enamored too often with types and shadows. We want rites. We want religious ceremonies. We want 
to come up with our own invented displays of piety or holiness or outward religion to God. And as often as not, we return to those Old Testament types and shadows in some way, shape, or form. The Reformers saw this 500 years ago and began to reform the worship of the church away from the, the mysticism and the ceremony and the rites of the church at the time. But you see it rising up again today. Different sorts of meditation and prayer practices, overly ritualized worship, mysticism, outward ceremony celebrated above worshiping in spirit and in truth. People don't realize this, but <laughs> the, modern, the modern advent of the praise band up front leading worship is just a modern version of the priest up front worshiping for the congregation in the cathedrals of, of, of Europe. The congregation just watches while the professionals do their work. As I can guarantee you, you walk into most churches where there's a praise band up front, the praise band is singing their hearts out. God bless them. Congregation just standing there watching, 90% of them. It's dark, there's lights on. Tell me this isn't the modern form of medieval worship. But our hearts are turned to these things. We, we fall in love with the shadow and forget the reality. As tempting as these things may be, as pretty as they may be, remember, it's just a model. It's just a model. It's not the reality. Third thing we can think about here is to remember that we're always tempted to add to what Christ has done, and we shouldn't do that. It's the lesson of Galatians. I haven't done enough for God. My motives aren't pure enough before God. I could have done more in this or that situation, or I shouldn't have done what I did in this or that situation. Lack of peace, lack of happiness, lack of blessing in my life is somehow my fault, as if I didn't do enough for God. All these ways that we blame ourselves, the ways that we lament our sins and imperfections. Now, there's a place for that. But when we do it thinking that if we just changed our ways, things would be better and God would be happier, we're down the wrong path. That's just a type and a shadow. You cannot keep the law and live. You cannot keep the law and be happy. And it may be well-intentioned. We love God. We want to serve Him. We want to do His will in our lives. But when we begin to think that we need to add something to what God has done, we're inherently saying to God that the work that Jesus did is not good enough. And that's an insult to God. And that's an insult to Christ. If I have to add my own work and my own goodness and my own obedience to that of Christ, then inherently his wasn't good enough. That's why Paul's so angry in Galatians. How dare we say something like that? He finished his work. He sat down at the right hand of majesty. It is done. It is finished. It is complete. We don't serve to earn anything or to, to justify God's love for us. We serve because we love him, because we're thankful. Because we see the goodness and holiness of his law. It's hard to sit back and rest upon the gift that God has given to us, but that's what we're called to do. 
inherit the promises of God through faith and patience. Not by your own work. Not by your own goodness. Fourth thing that we can take from this. Resting on God's work for us in Jesus. Trusting in the power of the Holy Spirit to work in us. We therefore can work for God confidently, free from worry, that whatever the results are, they're in God's hands. That's our approach to witnessing. It's not my job to convince somebody. It's not my job to debate somebody into the kingdom. My job is just to share with them the faith. I can do that confidently and trust that God will take care of the outcome. But that's true in every area. I can love my wife. I can love my children. I can do my job. I can live life doing my best to follow God's word and trust that he'll take care of the consequences, the outcome. Lean not in your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. A man plans, but the Lord directs the outcome. Michael Horton, one of my professors back in seminary, has pointed out in recent years, and I think he's absolutely right, that the Christian life is to be a promise-driven life, not a purpose-driven life. A purpose-driven life is a works-oriented life inherently. We're called to live life believing in the promises of God. We've already been given in this book, (coughs) in chapter 6 of Hebrews, the example of Abraham, who lived his life believing in the promises of God. And it wasn't because he was a good man. It wasn't because he was a better believer that he took Isaac up the mountain to sacrifice him. It's because God told him, it's through Isaac that the blessings will come. And the author of Hebrews tells us, Abraham believed, even if he killed his son, that God would raise him from the dead because God keeps his promises. How does that affect how we live our lives? Trusting in the promises of God rather than being purpose-driven. Think about that, purpose-driven. Driven people, driven to succeed. Hardly ever satisfied, always striving for the next goal, the next success. There's benefits to this. We even read about it as we remembered the Tenth Commandment earlier today. Contentment. Be content. Don't covet. Leads to lack of worry. Leads to peace. And it leads to rest. By faith, through patience, inherit the promises of salvation. There's that old hymn that says, "'Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus, just to take him at his word." That's true. How true is that? So trust in him. Trust in him today. Trust in him always. The one who guards and keeps your going out and your coming in, as we heard earlier. Accept his work for sinners. Receive it and rest upon it. Quit trying. Quit striving. Quote an old hymn. There's an old Keith Green song. My son, my son, why are you striving? You can't add one thing to what's been done for you. Believe the promises of God. Wait patiently for him to keep them because God keeps his promises. He always has, and he always will.
Let me pray for us. Oh Lord our God, we thank you that you are a promise-keeping God <clears throat> and that we, your people, can trust in those promises. So many, so many have already been fulfilled. We can see the handiwork of your salvation on behalf of your people. There are promises that remain, promises to work holiness in us, promises to drive out sin and to breathe life into us through your word and through your spirit, but promises as well to keep and preserve us till the end. That even though we die, we like Christ will rise from death and enter into your presence for all of eternity. May that day come and may it come quickly. Help us to be those who with faith and with perseverance and with patience are those who inherit the promises that you have given to us. This is not natural to us. And so we ask that you would work mightily in us by your word and by your spirit to make us those who cling to Christ and cling to the promises that you have given to us in him. We ask it in his precious, wonderful, and holy name. Amen.